Welcome to another episode of Vision of Zion. I'm Craig Perry, and with me is Sean White, my guest, who's been sharing with us his insights on the book of Isaiah. Hello, Sean. Hi, Craig. Good to be back. It's been a little bit of a break, hasn't it? We were kind of going fast and furious, and now we're we we're we're rested up and recovered and ready to go, right? Yes, we are. Okay. Hmm. Uh, just a note for everybody, we had Isaiah 15 posted. It was one of the very first podcasts we did. Sean felt that there were some significant changes that needed to be made, and so I took that down. But the next chapter we were going to do in the series, because we started to go sequentially, was Isaiah chapter 14. We did chapter 13. That was our last episode. I don't know. It seems like forever, but it was probably maybe a week or two ago. Yeah, so I think it's been two weeks. Okay, mm-hmm. so we're going to pick up now with Isaiah 14, and then depending upon how much time we have, we'll do Isaiah 15, and we also have notes for chapter 16. And once again, we're using the translation from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Uh, we'll follow our same pattern where I will read, and uh, and then the verses, and then Sean will provide commentary, and if I have any thoughts on it, I will also jump in. Uh, Sean, can you tell us what Isaiah chapter 14 is about? The first part of the chapter, we'll see a short time period after Armageddon as we recognize Lucifer before he is bound and put away. Okay. The fact that Lucifer is bound after Armageddon is uh, a common uh, theme in Scripture and in the uh, people's visions that I've, that I've read. So this is going to be interesting. Verse 1. For Yahweh will have compassion on Jacob and will yet choose Israel and set them in their own land. The foreigner will join himself with them, and they will unite with the house of Jacob. God's will will have compassion on those truly seeking to hear his voice, and yet give preference to those who can hear his voice. The foreigner represents those who have not been able to accept Christianity in their native lands. They will unite in learning with those truly seeking to hear God's voice. All right, verse 2. Many peoples will take them and bring them to their ground and to their place. The house of Israel will possess them in Yahweh's land for servants and for handmaids. They will take as captives those whose captives they were, and they shall rule over their oppressors. These people truly seeking to know God and to hear his voice are taken into righteous homes. They will be integrated into their families so that they can grow faster. Those that are assimilated into families, families may have been people that we once oppressed the righteous and now have sought to correct their ways and know God. Um, We ought to go back and talk a little more detail on this if we'll get through. Okay. We will come back to all these verses. Verses 3 through 6. It will happen in the day that Yahweh will give you rest from your sorrow, from your trouble, and from the hard service in which you were made to serve, that you will take up this parable against the king of Babylon and say, How the oppressor has ceased, the golden city has ceased. Yahweh has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, who struck the peoples in wrath with a continual stroke who ruled the nations in anger with a persecution that no one restrained. One might ask, when will this happen? 
It will happen in a time when God gives you rest from your sorrows and burdens. It will happen when the king of Assyria has lost all of his power and influence. Verses 7 and 8. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break out in song. Yes, the cypress trees rejoice with you, with the cedars of Lebanon, saying, Since you are humble, no lumberjack has come against you. Now that the oppressors have no more power or influence over the people, they rejoice in song as they establish Zion in a permanent way. They work tirelessly to finish the temples for Christ's return. Verses 9 and 10. Sheol from beneath has moved for you to meet you at your coming. It stirs up the departed spirits for you, even all the rulers of the earth. It is raised up from their thrones, all the kings of the nations. They all will answer and ask you, have you also become as weak as we are? Have you become like us? Remembering in this verse that soul is the underworld or the place in which Lucifer dwells. In this scene, people can clearly see that Lucifer had, and the influence that he has had over the leaders of our world, he is not a scary person. They envision him as being this man lucifer who led the leaders of the nations to oppress us and take away our agency is seen as a weak man verse 11 your pomp is brought down to sheol with the sound of your stringed instruments maggots are spread out under you and worms cover you soul is the ancient world's concept of the afterlife as a subterranean land of gloom and deep darkness a literal place in which dead people are placed. Example, in the ground, Lucifer's pride, which came with him from the pre-existence, has lowered him to a loathsome existence in hell. We're going to now read verses 12 through 17. <clears throat> How you have fallen from the heavens, O morning star, son of the dawn. You who commanded the nations have been honed down to earth. You said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mountain of assembly in the far north. I will descend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Yet you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you. They will ponder you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth to tremble and shook the kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities? who didn't release his prisoners to their home? This verse can, I think, most adequately be explained by reading DNC 76, especially verses 25 through 29. And this we saw also and bear record that the angel of God, who was in authority in the presence of God, who rebelled against the only begotten Son, whom the Father loved, who was in the bosom of the Father, was thrust down from the presence of God and the Son, and was called perdition, for the heavens wept over him, and he was Lucifer, son of the morning. And now, and we behold, lo, he has fallen, he has fallen, even the son of the morning. Going on to verse 28, And while we were yet in the Spirit, the Lord commanded us that we should write a vision. For behold, Satan, that old serpent, even the devil who rebelled against God and sought to take the kingdom of our God and his Christ, wherefore he maketh war with the saints and encompass them round about. At this point, 
we can clearly see that Lucifer, and he didn't, he didn't, he's not so scary after all, um, that all this power that he wielded, but because we couldn't see him, we became more afraid, just like everything that we can't see. We stare in awe at this man that once wielded so much power over us and go, oh my gosh, how could this have been? Let's go to verses 18 through 20. All the kings of the nations sleep in glory, everyone in his own house. But you are cast away from your tomb like an abominable branch, clothed with the slain who are thrust through with the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trodden underfoot. You will not join them in burial because you have destroyed your land. You have killed your people. The offspring of evildoers will not be named forever. In this verse, we're still speaking to Lucifer. We see that the righteous resting in glory, but Lucifer being cast down. He has taken the lives of many people in an effort to set up his own kingdom. He is now bound with those that followed him in the bottomless pit. For about a thousand years, Michael and his army that once bound Lucifer and his followers in the pre-existence escort them to the bottomless pit. This scene is described in Revelations 20, verse 1. And I saw an angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which was the devil, and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit, and shut him up, and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more, till a thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And we can go to Daniel 12.1 and see reference to this also. And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of thy people, and there shall be a time of trouble, which has never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. And that time thy people shall be delivered, every one that shall be found written in the book. And many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those are very important cross-references that we'll go back to in a couple of minutes here. So what's happening now in the book at this point, Sean? We're going to shift away from this, and we need to remember that, um, you know, now we're going into another part of the vision, and we're going to carry on with more detail within segments and go into more specific areas as we start in this verse. All right, so let me read verses 21 through 23 now of Isaiah 14. Prepare for slaughter of his children because of the iniquity of their fathers, that they rise not up and possess the earth and fill the surface of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, says Yahweh of armies, and cut off from Babylon name and remnant and sons and sons' sons, says Yahweh. I will also make it a, sorry, possession or the porcupine, and pools of water. I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, says Yahweh of armies. Sorry, I had it, had it stapled there. <laughs> Isaiah is returning to the midpoint of the tribulation, where God 
has pronounced who the servant or Yahweh of armies is. The Yahweh of armies is announcing that he will wipe out all of the people and their cities that represent having power and dominion over others. This phrase is so interesting. Fill the surface of the world with cities. In the book, The Conflict of Adam and Eve with Satan, is a Christian extra catechal work found in Giyas, which is translated from Arabic. It covers the trials of Adam and Eve face after they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. In this book, it talks about Cain after he had killed his brother Abel. Lucifer taught Cain to work metal and how to build cities. It was through the building of cities that Cain was able to put the people under bondage. The people could no longer provide for all the things themselves to live. They became dependent upon others for their needs. It is easy at this point for people to take advantage of one another. Joseph Smith and Brigham Young designed cities in which people could raise their own food. Yahweh of armies wants nothing to do with the remnants of past cities which oppress the people and vows to make them in, in inhabitable, uninhabitable. Let's go now to verses 26 and 27. Yahweh of armies has sworn, saying, Surely as I have thought, so shall it happen. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand, that I will break the Assyrian in my land and tread him underfoot on my mountains. Then his yoke will leave them, and his burden leave their shoulders. This is the plan that is determined for the whole earth. This is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For Yahweh of armies has planned, and who can stop it? His hands are stretched out, and who can turn them back? As Yahweh of armies speaks, we can see that God has given him power. Those that have used Satan's principles to have power and dominion over others should tremble. As Yahweh of armies pushes forward with God's plan, nothing can stop him. He will humble the proud and the unrighteous so that they might turn their hearts and minds back to God. He will protect those that truly can hear God speak within themselves. Verses 28 through 30. This burden was in the year that King Ahaz died. Don't rejoice, O Philistia, all of you because the rod that struck you is broken. For out of the serpent's root, an adder will emerge, and his fruit will be a fiery flying serpent. The firstborn of the poor will eat, and the needy will lie down in safety. And I will kill your root with famine, and your remnant will be killed. When does all this happen? When the one who oversees the promised lands where the Ephraimites dwell dies. During this time when King Ahaz of our day dies, God will reveal his servant, that is, to prepare the way for Christ's return. He will be given power to humble a people. Just because the wicked king oppressed the people of our day, there will be more humbling experiences to overcome. I think it's important to also note here that the fiery flying serpent is fruit, so somewhere his um, posterity, there's someone that will rise up and um, and lash out like a fiery flying serpent. Okay, verse 31. Howl, gate, cry, city. You are melted away, Philistia, all of you. For smoke comes out of the north, and there is no straggler in his ranks. He is telling us to look north. 
because the trouble from other unrighteous leaders is coming our way. As we will see in other chapters, the king of Assyria's army comes from the north. This also links to chapter 9 of Isaiah. Verse 32. What will they answer, the messengers of the nation, that Yahweh has founded Zion, and in, and in her him the afflicted of his people will take refuge? The messengers going out at this time represent the 144,000 as referenced in Revelations chapter 7. They go out with the words of those that are speaking from the dust as referenced in 2 Nephi 29.1. These messengers invite all of whom they contact to gather into the inner valleys that provide refuge to all those that can hear God's voice. All right, that concludes our reading of Isaiah chapter 14, but it does not include our commentary, which we need to get through, <laughs> I think, here. There's a lot of a lot of stuff in here. Um there really like to, is. Yeah, let's go to verse 1. I have some questions here. So when it says uh, the Yahweh will have compassion on Jacob and will yet choose Israel, this to me is the uh, promise that after the Lord turned his... Uh, attention away from Israel for many, many centuries, uh, that he would yet gather them again. And as we read another way to say it, and this is defined in Scripture, the first shall be last, and the last shall be first. So the Gentiles were last, they became first for a while, but now the last or the first are going to be last. So you agree with that, that this this is a representation of when yep. Israel's gathered again and the and the Gentiles play a role in that too. It is. It really is. But we want to remember here the key words again of Jacob and Israel. Jacob's name was changed to Israel when he became close to God again. And so we're looking at a people that are like Jacob who know God and everything, and they know his word, but they haven't developed this close relationship to personally know him, you know, to have this personal relationship with him to the point that their name has changed. And uh, that's something that I think many of us are seeking to have our name permanently changed because we see so many men and women throughout the scriptures in which when they develop that close relationship to God, that their name was changed by God. In addition to that, Sean, uh, I, I yes, everything that talks about the gathering of Israel also uh, is always referred to as the remnant. Of Israel, so it's not everybody; it's it's a, right. it's a it's a portion, and I think the Lord leaves that portion undefined. But it's not everybody in Israel. So, uh, and I and I do, we do see that pattern of people taking on a new name when they are when they receive the covenant of the Lord. Get the covenant, you get a new name. So, yes, it's always a rent. Whenever we talk about gathering, we're talking about the gathering of the remnants of Israel in the last days. Yeah. All right, let's go to same thing. It was the same idea here in verse two. Uh, I think um, they'll possess the lands again. I mean, this all started, uh, and even though we have a nation of Israel, it doesn't mean that they're all part of the remnant. But the the promise that they would go back to their homeland is in fulfillment, and. As far as them taking captive those who held them captive, I, I don't know that I've seen that yet. No. You okay. know, one of the things in my vision of the future and everything was 
uh, being prepared for those that once oppressed us. Um, not all the oppressors will change their heart, but we are going to have oppressors that will turn their heart and they will want to know God. And my question in my mind has always been from the scenes that I've seen, am I ready to accept somebody that was a vile sinner, maybe even such as Alma the Younger, and to accept him and listen to him? You know, we have even Saul, who was struck down blind there for a few days and stuff. And I mean, he killed a lot of people. He did vile things to the saints and everything. And then could we accept him as a good man and bring him into the fold and to know that he had seen God? I mean, I we I just constantly reminding myself that I need to be ready from the scenes that I've seen in the future to accept people when they turn their hearts. I mean, one example that I use among my friends and everything is could we openly accept Nancy Pelosi, you know, or someone like that? I mean, are we ready to, you know, accept these things? Well, if people repent and become converted, the sin is on us if we don't forgive and allow exactly. them to change and, and progress. I'm thinking about a man I watched on YouTube, a preacher who said he saw hell and he was waiting. He died, and he's like, oh, I'm going to see all these good works that I did. I can't wait to see all the good works. And he didn't see them. He went to a place where there was a lot of pain. And he's like, Lord, how come I'm not seeing all the great things that I did? He says, because in your heart, there's certain people you have not forgiven. And this is the second time I've read this where an, a woman, other woman, was a Catholic, and same thing. She... Uh, went to a bad place first. And she says, why am I here? You know, I've been praying to Mary and I've done all my good works in the church. And he said, because you haven't forgiven your father. Well, her father had uh, been, had betrayed her mother and, and married his, her mother's best friend. And she was holding it inside. And she's like, well, I, I can't forgive her. There's no way I can forgive her. And the Lord says, that's why you're here. <laughs> yeah. So I've I read two accounts where the uh, unwillingness to forgive has been the weight that has kept people from enjoying the, um, the par paradisical side of the waiting period between death and the resurrection. You know, as so I've seen um, spirit prison and I've witnessed those that have committed suicide and and many different scenes, I have learned that how much I need to forgive them and not hold it against them for what they had done, and even pray that my voice might be heard to them or carried to them to know that I have forgiven them for what has happened and what I may have contributed in my part on there. But it was a huge relief in my life, and I had no idea what would happen after I let go of those things one by one in opening my life up and ready to receive more and grow more. So as we go to verses three through eight, the word that stuck out to me was rest. You know, the whole earth is at rest and quiet, breaking out in song. I'm thinking, man, rest seems so far from this world today. It's going to be quite a shock to go from the state we're in to this state of peace and rest. Uh, hard to even fathom that today with all the noise. 
you know, as I saw scenes of building the Temple of New Jerusalem and working together in groups with, you know, people from the Ten Tribes, people from the city of Enoch. And um, as we worked, whether we were humming a song or we were singing a song together, it was just spontaneous and natural and uh, such a joy that we there was just like no other way. We we just felt so good and about everything that we just kind of had to burst out in song. It was so amazing. And it's hard to comprehend a state of being in which we could rejoice in that way and not be persecuted or looked down upon. Well, we know from various sources that at the end of the transition of the earth from a telestial to a terrestrial state, that's how we would say it as members of the church. Um, there is this period of peace and it's, it lasts for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. And I remember when I was younger, I used to ask myself, you know, when it says Satan will be bound for a thousand years, I'm like, how is that going to happen? Uh, and the answer, it was pretty young when I got the answer. I was probably 18 or 19, but uh, I did wonder as a, let's say a seminary student, as a high school student, you know, how's, how's that going to happen? But then the answer I found was in First Nephi chapter 22, verse 26. I'm going to read it to you. How is Satan bound? Right here it is. And you can see this all here when it says in verse 7 and 8, now that the oppressors have no more influence over the people, they rejoice. Well, how does his influence go away? And here's the answer in verse 26. And because of the righteousness of his people, Satan has no power. Wherefore, he cannot be loosed for the space of many years, for he hath no power over the hearts of the people, for they dwell in righteousness, and the Holy One of Israel reigneth. Well, that's why it's going to become unraveled again in the end of the millennium. So that's not to say, though, that he's not, you know, that the charge is not led by Michael, because that's pretty clear in Scripture, too, that the, you know, putting him away. This is something Alfred Douglas Young also talked about. He saw Satan get put away for a season. And uh, I think he said, he described it as he was put into a place in the universe where there was no intelligence. That's how he described it, like a blood. I just pictured blackness. And that's going to eventually happen. Uh, well, he have, have no influence for a long season. And then finally, at the end of that, after Gog and Magog, it's going to end permanently, at least for those of us who have you know, been on this earth and been tried. I don't know how, what the big eternal scheme is. But uh, anyway, I thought that was always interesting, Sean. It's the righteousness of the people that binds him. And of course, that makes sense because the opposite is also true. Because we see he was a weak person as far as... Uh, I keep picturing the movie, The Wizard of Oz, where, um, you know, the, the big Oz and and, and <laughs> everybody's afraid and, and the lion jumps out after uh, they ask to bring back the broom of the Wicked Witch and Toto goes behind the curtain and pulls it back and it's this little guy. Uh, right. And I always think about that because this is what we're going to think when we finally meet him. He apparently has great powers of persuasion. But he's really just a nobody as far as in the grand scheme. We read this in the book of Moses, chapter 1, where Moses is taken up into heaven. And he has this incredible tour of the heavens. And then when Satan comes to tempt him and demand that he worship him, he's like, who are you? I can see you with my natural eyes. I don't have any, you know, any, there's nothing about you that impresses me. But then some fear crept in, of course. So he operates in the shadows, uh, he only has as much power as we give him. So really the power is vested in the people. 
and uh, uh, we're going to be surprised at, at at who he is and what he is. So his power is completely derivative of what we give him. That's what he got in heaven. He persuaded a third of the hosts of heaven. They remained with him, and that's where he gets his and draws his power. And uh, any any thoughts or comments on that? That is such a good representation of that, Craig, and realizing that because when we really truly align ourselves with Christ and the love that he has as we look to others and and try to love them as Christ would and things that that power will just be so magnificent in comparison to the fear that Lucifer's trying to use to control us and everything. And it, it will be really, really amazing to witness how such a simple thing as love has such great power. So these verses here, and it's pretty clear that all this is happening when? After the gathering of the remnant in verse 1, verse 2, and the peace comes from him being locked up. But now we get some background about Lucifer. Uh, he was a person, say was, past tense, in authority with God. I mean, he's a morning star, son of the dawn. These must be uh, labels ascribed to someone at one point who had been in authority with God. But he wanted to go to go get into heaven and take God's seat on the throne. And he wanted to make himself like the most high. But I think as we talked about before, he was trying to cut corners and not follow the program. Is that correct? Yeah, I like to think of it as a apprentice program um, that we see so much throughout Europe and everything. So in an apprentice program, we would come down and do a trial run of the real thing and uh, be an intern, so to speak, so that we could have this hands-on experience before we are turned loose with something with all of our knowledge and power, where Lucifer just wanted to skip the apprentice program and go direct to the mansion and the glory and having our own world and do whatever we wanted to do without any of the experience that we would gain through having a body or the testing that we might go through to prove that we understood what we were just being taught to see if it was really instilled within us. It sounds like, again, we're going to really be surprised at, at how little power he has and yet how much influence we gave him. My question here, Sean, is I notice in these verses that it talks about him wanting to sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far north. There's a couple of references to the north being like the power center of God. And then, of course, a parallel is that the king of Assyria also comes out of the north. I just wondering, right. is there anything to the North uh, metaphor, the North analogy, why that is considered to be the power source of God? Um, that is a very interesting question. And some of the Hebrew things that I've read, you know, East was an important direction too, because they went, Adam and Eve went East out of Eden, which also symbolized uh, going upward or going uh, toward God. Um and eastward also is significant that if you go to ancient maps and everything, today we put north on top, but anciently east was usually put on top. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure when we reverted and went back to putting north on top, but it's kind of hard for us to comprehend today after living with north on top all the time. But um, very, you know, there's a lot of things to ponder in relationship to this. Well, I don't want to dig too deep. 
on that. But this morning star is also the first star that rises uh, or the last star to go away, I guess, when the sun rises. It's the last, isn't it the last star to disappear before the sun blazes? So this is yes. interesting. We'll have to maybe get back to that sometime. That's probably going a little too deep from what we're trying to cover here. So if I'm leading us off track, I apologize. But just something that struck me as we were reading today. Um, When we go to verses 21 through 23, the Lord says, I'm going to sweep it with the broom of destruction. And uh, this, this imagery is also in the book of Moses. Um, I'm going to pull it up real quick here. He talks about it um, sweeping the earth as with a flood. This is in the book of uh, Moses, chapter 7, verse 62. When when basically Enoch says, when are you going to come back? When are you going to come down? When are you going to do these wonderful things that I've been preaching about and prophesying about? And this is what the Lord answers. And righteousness will I send down out of heaven, and truth will I send forth out of the earth which i find interesting what's out of the earth well we have the book of mormon we have i think you could say the books of the dead sea scrolls you know rising from the dust um and then we have more coming it goes on to say to bear testimony of mine only begotten his resurrection from the dead yea and also the resurrection of all men and righteousness and truth will i cause to sweep the earth as with a flood to gather out mine elect from the four quarters of the earth unto a place which I shall prepare an holy city. And of course, as we know, this is me going off off here is places of refuge to wait before that gathering occurs. But the sweeping as with the flood, you know, not an actual flood. The Lord promised us that the earth would never be covered by a flood as it was in the days of Noah. But we have this other type of flood, which is a flood of knowledge, truth, and spiritual um, witnessing, I think. Yeah, uh, very powerful. And even in Hugh Nibley's works and things, he talks about when we go from a shift from one dispensation to another dispensation, that there's always a sweeping action and a change occurring, which we're going to be going into the millennial dispensation from this. And um the destruction is really once Heavenly Father gives power to the right hand of God or Yahweh of armies or the servant that Isaiah describes as however you want to call that um, for him to start destroying the wicked. Um, it's going to be dramatic to see because they've at this point we've gathered out the people we've made sure through the 144,000 that the righteous that were in among them have been pulled out it's like the last gleaning the last separation and then it, Yahweh of armies is allowed to go through there and just wipe out the wicked yeah. and um, quite a, a scene but it's making sure that we can get the last good kernel out of there before you burn the tares so just speak. like Jacob five. Yeah. So uh, in, in verses 26 and 27, what I wrote down here in my notes was these, the hands stretched out. We have, I like what you talked about before. There's a right hand and there's a left hand. One is the hand of, um, I guess, in justice. Power. And one is the hand of mercy. Would that be accurate? 
Well, it depends on what part you're looking at. On the the right hand, so many times, usually you consider it the servant, Yahweh of armies or whatever. It's his righteous hand, where his left hand is the hand that, you know, the king of Assyria is often referred to as the left hand, and he empowers him to bring tribulation on the righteous to humble them. And then when he has no more use for him, like the axe we referred to earlier, you know, you cast the axe aside, but the axe has no more power without God. You cannot do anything. I'm going to go off on a little, little uh, deep dive here, a little tangent. Um, I'll be quick about it though. When the Salt Lake Temple was initially designed as I recall reading about it, because I've done quite a bit of reading, not as much maybe as some, but enough to comment on what I've read. And as I understand it, Brigham Young, when he announced there would be a temple built, he sat down with the the architect that was going to become the architect of the Salt Lake Temple. His name was Truman Angel, or maybe it's Truman O. Angel. Anyway, they sat down and Brigham Young began to describe this temple that was going to be built where it is today. And there were drawings that were done preliminarily, which are available. I'll talk about that in a second. And I got a book called, uh, oh, I can't remember the name now, but it had a white cover. Oh, it's called The Salt Lake Temple Monument to a People. And I got it back in the 90s, I think. And I've every time I find a copy, I buy it because I don't think it's in print anymore. But it has uh, several of the old drawings of the salt lake temple in its original state and the commentary by the author talks about how there were changes made for example the moonstones were set a certain way in the original drawings but when it got when they got to the point where they were going to build that level of the temple orson pratt uh made sure that the stone the moonstones were set i think it was in the pattern of the uh moonstones or the the of the moon the uh year that they reached that level of the temple i think that the original drawings may have had some intrinsic meaning but nevertheless that's an example of a change made well another couple changes that were made is that initially uh brigham young envisioned that the temple would be made out of sandstone now this is where one of his uh observations i believe is not correct which is that he, and i've read this again that he believed that Soft materials became harder over time, and and hard materials became soft over time. So he wanted to build it out of sandstone because it would become hardened, and then if it were granite, though, it would get softer. I don't think that's scientifically true, and they tried to build it out of sandstone, but the point initially, but the foundation cracked, so they started over. Uh, another side story is that uh, Wilford Woodruff, said that there was a big discussion among the brethren about what to build a temple out of after the foundation cracked. And he said, I never participated in the debate about what to do because he had seen it in a vision that the temple was made out of granite. So he didn't bother to argue about it because he knew that's what would happen. So I, I love that story. But at any rate, a lot of the details that were put into the initial plans, the drawings, could not be done in the granite but only in a softer stone. So you have all these interesting details, like there were Saturn stones, which they're on the temple today, but you can't tell that they're Saturn. But in the original drawings, you can see there's a, a towards the top, there's this there's a planet Saturn with the, you know, with the um the ring around it. Anyway, on the front of the temple we have today, we have what are called the um cloud stones. 
and they're on the east side. And the original drawings were on the right and the left of the doors, the east doors, the which were the um, doors to walk into the temple originally before they then built out the annex on the north side. Anyway, these two pictures, one, they're, they're in the original drawings, the one on the right, uh, there is a cloud that Angel drew, and there was just a slight amount of a trumpet uh, coming through the clouds. Uh, on the left-hand side, and this is in this book again, on the left-hand side, uh, there was another cloud stone, but it wasn't identical. It was different. And what was different was that the hand was extended below the cloud holding a trumpet. Now, if you get into the more of the detail of this temple, it was also set, uh, if you look from the top down, it was set to potentially a calendar of dates, which I find interesting. And there's another article I found by a woman from the 1940s who talked about you know, how it was set using the Jewish calendar like a big dial above it and 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 it was a, it's a very interesting article to think about and ponder but the bottom line is there were two distinct and different cloud stones and if i remember correctly now if you go to the granite on the right hand side the cloud stone is not as voluminous as the one on the left and i believe that the arm of the lord being revealed on the one on the left uh, or the hand or the trumpet, it signifies a different point in time compared to the one on the right. And it's not intended to be a du du duplication of one another. One references one time period and one another. And when I hear President Nelson talk about, you know, the restoration has just begun, I think about how maybe this is in phases. We have the original restoration on the right, maybe signifying April of... Um, 1830 or around that time period and then on the right when the lord really reveals himself and and uh i find that extremely significant the fact that it was put into granite we lose the meaning but it's there in the original drawings and it's in this book you can look at the original drawings and you can you know judge for yourself so i know it's a big tangent to go off on but i felt impressed to mention it so i did yeah that really ties into this um we also just another point on that is that if i remember right there's a, it's depicted as being a year with two new moons and of course anciently ancient people followed the cycle of the moon more than they did the cycle of the sun and of course the moon runs on what a 13 13 and a half year time period but hmm. um interesting well again that's another uh a deep dive we can take talking about about those kinds of things um, yeah. and i would love to sometime uh the next part is this fiery flying serpent so is that the same as uh this as a dragon well in the year that king ahaz died um you know so that now we're talking about this wicked leader who brought much corruption upon the house of israel that and we're saying that the rod that struck you is broken. So the rod that King Ahaz has used against us, you know, whoever we're going to term our King Ahaz of today is our wicked leader, is broken. And then when he dies out of his fruit or out of, you know, if we think about that as a fruit or who's his posterity, uh, rises up 
as a fiery flying serpent. And so we want to watch out when he does and the, the power is taken away or something of who's going to rise up. It is kind of a marker for us too, to, uh, to know how close we are at this time. I think this is versus our wonderful marker that we can look for and, and watch for and go, Oh yeah, we're in that time. Hmm. Um, so here's this reference in verse 31 about smoke comes out of the north uh, and there's no stragglers and drinks. Again, I'm thinking about that power source of the north that we saw in a few verses earlier. Um, I'm not sure if that I north think... is from the uh, king of Yahweh or king of Assyrians. You said they're coming from the north. Maybe God gives them power for a time to um, you know, exercise his judgment. Well, today I think we can kind of start to see some likenesses because um, this smoke means danger. It means dangers coming towards us, just like this over the weekend. You could see in Nova Scotia a uh, great fire raging and coming towards the people, and they were really afraid. I mean, if we look around the world today and see the gaining strength, I mean, we're just at the little kernel seedlings of the the battle starting to form. We see China getting ready to take over Taiwan. We see Russia and Ukraine. We see the little kindlings of the fire starting. But when the smoke starts to rise and get bigger and bigger, we need to be prepared that we will be next. Um after these things happen. So that's where the smoke comes in is to watch on the horizon for these other places to be taken over. Okay. Again, my mind goes to the wizard of Oz, the big puffs of smoke. <laughs> Sorry, <Yeah>. but <clears throat> um, I wanted to maybe close with one comment, which again, may sound like a straight comment, like the comment I just made about the Salt Lake temple, but in this article or articles that I've read, I've got two or three books on temple symbolism on the exterior. There's another book called uh, Symbols in Stone. Great book. Actually, it has a big appendix uh, quoting from Alfred Douglas Young's journal. It was the first book I found that I actually quoted from him. But anyway, they also said that if you, if you go to the Salt Lake Temple, and you can't get too close to it now because it's still under... Um, earthquake hardening let's say it's they're still working there at temple square but on the on the west face of the temple there's the um there's the big dipper towards the top and uh somebody pointed out in one of these articles that if you were to connect those two outer um, stars on the face of that uh representation and draw a line off into space literally off into space that the way the temple is aligned, um, you would it takes you to the North Star in, in this actual sky. So think about that. It's pretty cool this, that the um, the Big Dipper points off into um, into the North and points to the North Star. So just another crazy thing that I you know dig in, have dug into in, in the years past that I found pretty interesting. Was there anything else? Go ahead. Go ahead, please. In verse 32 there, as we close up, um, sending out these messengers um, is going to be more important. And we're going to dig into that in some other parts of Isaiah, uh, especially in getting voices from the dust and talking more in depth of the voices from the dust, which is exciting 
um, we just, you know, Isaiah is so interesting because we, we get a piece here and we get a piece there and we have to put together this whole picture with 66 chapters explaining approximately a seven year period of time. So there's lots of puzzle pieces here. So kind of in summary of this chapter, we have a gathering of the remnant. We have peace and rest and quiet while Satan is under lockdown and loses all power. We learn quite a bit about him here, uh, even though when we see who he really is, we'll be dismayed by his lack of power compared to God. Um, we won't be able to believe it. He was the one behind all of this mess. Uh, and uh, and then we have refuge during this period. So it's a very, uh, very full chapter. And I want to thank you, Sean, for uh, the efforts you've made to bring this uh, chapter to light. Oh, thank you, Craig, for having me. It's been a wonderful evening doing this. Well, you've been listening to Vision of Zion. Our next chapter is going to be sequentially chapter 15. We hope you tune in then. Thanks for listening.